Welcome everybody to Roger's List. We are the podcast where we are watching every single one of Roger Ebert's great movies and we're reviewing it and we are discussing it. And uh, I am the head, Steve Guntley. Mm-hmm. Joining me today are the hands. The hands, Michaela Nicholson. We I don't have a heart. We don't have a heart. There's no mediator. I don't know how this is going to work. Workplace mediation. Oh man, we need something to, to unite these two <laughs> warring sides of our podcast. To unionize. Yeah. <laughs> Secret communist movie. Oh, well, we are uh, we are very happy to be back here. We're going to be talking about Fritz Lang's Metropolis, uh, which I'm very excited to dig into. Woo-hoo. But before we do, as always, we have to look back into the past uh, to the long distant years of last week <laughs> when we discussed My Fair Lady, the mm-hmm. classic George Cukor musical. Uh, so we're looking at what Roger Ebert had to say about it in his great movies essay. Mm-hmm. And... He's getting a little shady in this yeah. in this one. He's getting a little defensive, I think. A I think he was sassy. having a he was having a bit of a bad day, I wonder, when he yeah. wrote this. The attitude in this one is very real. The uh, I imagine we might have pulled the same quote, but uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, I, yeah, probably. When the, I read it, I was like This this has gotta be mentioned. But uh, it says uh, uh, one of his his quotes in the My Fair Lady article are it is unnecessary to summarize the plot or list the songs. If you are not familiar with both, you are culturally illiterate. <gasps> Although in six months I could pass you off as a critic at Cannes, or even a clerk in a video store, which requires better taste. Ooh. I actually had to look up, like, was this the can that he came where he saw Brown Bunny and got into that whole big scuffle with Vincent Gallo? That didn't happen this time. This was the year that... Um, it was a Dardan brother movie that huh. won, uh, and, and he was just bitter. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what he was doing coming off a can like that because he seemed grouchy. But yeah. well, it was nice to read that for me because I used to be a video clerk. So yeah, it made me feel. I was like, cool. I guess I could be a critic again if I wanted to be. I, I'm, I've always been an aspiring video clerk, and now it's a job that just doesn't really exist anymore. I can't do it. Yeah. But uh, I thought that was an interesting point, and I don't think he would make the same argument today because. That one of the th- big things we talked about with My Fair Lady was that it's become weirdly inaccessible, mm-hmm. and I think this day and age, like younger people, uh, metabolize movies through streaming services. Yeah. You know, that's not how that's how you discover movies is by coming across it on your streaming service. And My Fair Lady does not have a digital footprint. No, and it doesn't really have a musical footprint either. The only song that I think has like endured is "I Could Have Danced All Night." Yeah, um, like I don't think you could walk up to any millennial or probably any Gen Zer and yeah. ask if they could name any other songs from My Fair Lady. That's the thing. And like I when when you're Ebert's age, you saw this movie in theaters where it was one of the biggest box office draws of all time. Mm-hmm. You know, and then you showed it to your kids and your kids showed it to their grandkids, but now we're another generation past that mm-hmm. and like I just don't feel that people have the same affection for it. Yeah. And maybe they would if it was still as available as it was. Maybe. But even so, like this, I feel like The Sound of Music, like if he had written that sentence about The Sound of Music, I would have like, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone knows The Sound of Music. We all know the songs. And I think even if My Fair Lady had been as accessible as The Sound of Music, I think The Sound of Music is like more family friendly and like easier to pass off onto your kids than My Fair Lady is just because of like the male-female dynamics at play or like oh, yeah, the class it's, divide that's a little bit inaccessible for younger audiences maybe. It's it's an adult movie not in the sense that you generally think of that word but it's a movie <laughs> yeah. about adults. There are no children in it. It's like it's just about conversation and, and society and class yeah. and it's, it's things that may not be as easily fed to children as Sound of Music mm-hmm. might be. Yeah. Um, but yeah, either way I thought that demonstrated that interestingly and I also thought he, he brought up he considers this a very feminist movie, I know. which is something that, that we kind of bumped against. Yeah, he was like, if he, like people forget, but it was her. It was Eliza who like who took the initiative, who went to his house, and I think Lindsay mentioned that that like, yeah. that she was the one who was like, no, I want you to teach me, and like she like he would have just gone on with his life had she not intervened, which was an interesting take, um, and made me sort of want to watch it again with that lens because I was just so blindsided by like the sort of outdated like sexism at play like casual sexism, yeah i guess um but yeah he also seemed convinced that like uh the the ending was ambiguous mm-hmm. that we don't know if mm-hmm. eliza's gonna stick around it seemed pretty clear to me from the swell of the music and the hopeful look on her face that she was gonna stick around yeah and the type of movie that this is like the big sort of bellowing romantic tone that it all had yeah like, i can't really i didn't think that was ambiguous i didn't think like she would have just 
gone back out and left and gone after what's his name or just been by herself like that doesn't seem like what the movie was pointing to right and ebert points to like uh uh the they said that their relationship is like more of a fencing match whereas like with freddie who's so sincere and like moony-eyed that there's no real tension the movie was smart enough to kind of footnote him which i I agree with but but i was still a little bummed like i really just wanted i wanted him i wanted um sorry main love interest um, uh eliza Eliza and uh, uh, Henry. Henry. Yeah. I wanted Henry to feel jealous. Like, I wanted him to realize what he was missing because I just hated the way he was treating her. Mm-hmm. And so I sort of wanted her to end up with the dopey dude who was waiting outside her doorstop because I wanted him to realize, like, oh, like, I'm taking this girl for granted. She has a lot to offer. Not that, I mean, it sucks that it has to be, like, through the value of another man. Well, but, yeah, but at the same yeah. time, he should have to give something, you yeah. know. And I don't, yeah. I don't agree with his, with Ebert's claim that they have like a fencing match repartee. I don't no. really think they do. They I don't think feel equally matched. They don't feel equally matched. I think, and he, he, I don't think he ever gets to the point where he sees her as an equal, and that's kind of the problem. I think he does fall in love with her. Mm-hmm. I think he realizes that she's extraordinarily beautiful and yeah. like would be a Want. boon to his social status. Right. But I don't ever get the sense that he fell madly in love with her or that he ever respected her. Yeah, intellectually, certainly not. No. Um, and I think I would have liked this a lot more. And I think it maybe would have, like, maybe stood the test of time more if they were intellectually matched. Like, if they did spar in the way that he's talking about. Um, because it always feels like he has power over her. Like, yeah. Just, like, I don't know, the image of, like, her being kind of, like, strapped into that f- phonetic machine and like made to say these words and the way that he talks to her and the way that he talks about her nothing really felt there was never a moment where it seemed to dawn on him that this girl was smart and like equal to him yeah yeah no i agree with that i agree with that i did like uh ebert's last little claim here i I got another quote from the end of the uh essay it says eliza's escape from the lower classes engineered by higgins is a revolutionary act dramatizing how superiority was inherited not earned it is a lesson that resonates for all societies, and the genius of My Fair Lady is that it is both a great entertainment and a great polemic. It is still not sufficiently appreciated what influence it had on the creation of feminism and class, class consciousness in the years bridging 1914 when Pygmalion premiered, 1956 when the musical premiered, and 1964 when the film premiered. It was actually about something. Mm. And again, like... <laughs> I wonder if he's meeting it more than a little halfway Maybe. at that point. When like, I watched this movie, I definitely didn't think, wow, the strides that this film made for feminism. I do I do see the point that he's making about the uh, inherited uh, uh, superiority of the class system in Britain. Uh, but I think he's missing kind of the part about how Eliza essentially becomes an automaton, like once she becomes... Mm-hmm this new society figure, you know, and that's, that's the point. That's the satirical point that I think the movie wants to drive home. But Mm -hmm. you have this clash between being a splashy, uh, uh, for the masses musical Mm -hmm. and something that has a little bit more pointed and a little more acidic to say about Mm -hmm. the class system. So I think it's kind of in this nebulous zone. They could have hit it a little harder. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, I don't know. I imagine that there are movies that came out around the same time period that, have aged better in their gender politics. At least I hope so. Yeah. This, so. And again, I'm I'm still finding myself pleasantly surprised and mollified that uh, me and Eber do not agree on everything <laughs> anymore. Like, yeah. I branched out. I have my own taste, and I still think he's far smarter than me uh, <laughs> yeah. and writes way better than me. So you know. But you, um, you can do your own critical thinking. I can, yeah, and hey. I can I can push back on this dude, this <laughs> this that? old dude. <laughs> Anyway, let's uh, let's jump into our movie today. Today we are talking about the film Metropolis. Metropolis was released January 10th, 1927, directed by Fritz Lang, and it is a German production starring Alfred Abel, Brigitte Helm, Gustav Froelich, and Rudolf Klein-Roga. How's your German? It's terrible. How's yours? (laughs) Uh, Yes, so... um, do you have a do you have a, a, a pithy one line summary of this movie before I, I get into all the nuts and bolts? Yeah, and it's to the tune of the Arrested Development theme song. Ooh, let's do it. Um, this is the story of the high and low classes and the one robot that tied them all together. <laughs> I like that. <clears throat> I like that very much. Um, yeah, so Metropolis is easily one of the most influential silent films. Yeah. I think uh, um, pretty much our 
pop cultural idea of science fiction films comes from this movie. This are is you the a sci-fi framework. Guy? I I'm you are. very much okay, a sci-fi cool. guy. Well, you imagine I am. You see the thickness of my glasses <laughs> yeah. and the fatness of my butt. Just a guess. Just a zoom. Oh yeah. No, I'm a sci-fi guy. I definitely am. Um, I mean, I think, and this kind of transcends beyond just the visuals, which were obviously very uh, uh, influential. But like the, it was fun watching this and seeing all these tropes and thinking like, oh yeah, this is kind of tropey. I've seen this before, and then it's like, oh no, 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 this is where it comes from. Uh-huh. This is yeah. like everything comes from this. Mm-hmm. Like this is the ur text of, of modern science fiction yeah. filmmaking. This is the blueprint for Blade Runner, I imagine. Blade Runner, yeah, Dark City, which is another movie that's on the list that we're going to be talking about. Actually, Blade Runner's on the list too. Like <gasps> cool. uh, the Matrix, I, I read that like. Um, C-3PO is based mm-hmm. on the, the Machine oh, Man. Really? Uh, like, pretty much any idea of a modern humanoid robot mm-hmm. comes, comes from, from this. this. All wow. the way to the classic film Bicentennial Man. Oh, you know? Bicentennial Man. Starring Robo Williams. Oh. Um, yes. Uh, so, an incredibly important film. And until fairly recently, it's been very, very hard to find in anything uh, close to what it was originally intended. So, people have been kind of reacting to this movie for for decades and and based on just how visually stunning it is and now we're kind of seeing it more and more as a full film and realizing that it's a much richer film than people mm-hmm. thought yeah which is very cool mm-hmm. let's talk a little bit about our director he's someone we's going to encounter uh, that we're going to encounter a few times uh fritz lang so i think if you think about ever or, well we'll try a thought of experiment here okay. uh imagine a European silent film director. Okay. What do you see? What What's he look like? I what's see, his manner? Okay, I see like a, uh, a white, bald, mm, no, a little bit of hair. Okay. Skinny dude. Mm. Maybe a mustache. Mm-hmm. Like circles under his eyes. Like has, you know, been worn by life. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe wearing like a nice suit. Sure. And some nice shoes. Um, and has bad teeth. Okay, and how how do you think he uh, how do you think he reacts to his actors to his cast? Uh, like when he's directing them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I guess I picture him. Hmm, I guess I picture him stoic and humorless, oh. and uh, and a, a little mean, but in a way that gets shit done. Yeah, you know what? You're really not far <laughs> off. I feel like I feel like I have this stereotype of kind of European filmmakers of this era. And Fritz Lang kind of matches all of them. Mm-hmm. Think like the Jodhpur pants, <laughs> the monocle. The mm-hmm. man literally had an eye patch. Whoa, uh, and cool. he was extremely cruel to his actors uh-huh. and he put them through a lot. He was no exacting way. and a perfectionist and a bit of a bit of a slut. And uh, but but you know, he was a very important figure. I think mm-hmm. he's one of the guys that kind of helped define what film noir is yeah. over here in America. Mm-hmm. And over in Germany, he was a master of German expressionism. So he's kind of, he's been able to stride those two uh, uh, genres in such an effective way that he, he's very interesting to talk about. So uh, Lang was born in Vienna in 1890. He served four tours in World War I, uh, and he sustained injuries each time and finally losing his eye and needing to wear an eye patch for the rest of his life. Uh, he got his work as a screenwriter after the war, and he directed his first short film, which was called Half Blood, in 1919. I wonder if that's going to be a common thing with older movies that we come across as directors who served tours in in wars. I'm curious. I'm trying to think of how many more there were. Uh, who was it in Five Came Back? Like William uh-huh. Wyler went over. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jimmy Stewart wasn't a film director, but he went over. Oh, um, he did. Yeah, he f- he, he flew Stewart. fighter pilot. Uh, huh. Yeah, and he was a Hollywood star at the time. Yeah. Wow. Which is, uh, we'll get into that when we talk about It's a Wonderful Life, but that's kind of why, that's kind of the transitional point. That's a much darker movie than people realize, and a lot of it is because Jimmy Stewart was carrying the trauma of World War II. So anyway, we'll get into that when the time comes. But uh, yeah, so Fritz Lang, he steadily grew his reputation through short films and serials until finally he got his big break with a film called Dr. Mabuse the Gambler in 1922. Um, this is a film centered on a mind-controlling criminal mastermind, and uh, it was a big financial hit, and it's kind of looked back on as like a classic of the early German Expressionist era. Um, so Lang essentially had a blank check at this point. That movie was a big enough hit that he was allowed to make his passion project. And, and so this, this was his passion project. This was it. He used his newfound clout to get Metropolis made. Uh, so the film had a very mixed reception at the time. Did it cut, When it first came out, did it come out in its entirety? It did. Well, no, no. Uh, it came out... 
Well, well, I'll get into that in a second. I've got a whole other thing. But like, <laughs> okay, sorry. While, while the critics didn't love the movie, everyone kind of praised the visuals, and it did earn the respect and attention of Joseph Goebbels, who mm-hmm. is the propaganda master for the Nazi party. Yeah. And he approached Lang with an offer, more an ultimatum, to start directing propaganda films for the Nazi party. Lang declined, and then he realized he promptly had to get the fuck out of the country because you don't say no to the Nazi party at this time. And then they got Lenny Riefenstahl. Lenny Riefenstahl, yeah, who, again, we'll talk about. One of our four female filmmakers oh, on the list is unfortunately Lenny Riefenstahl. It's Triumph of the Will? It's Triumph of the oh, Will. Oh, my God. Um, so, yeah, he uh, uh, Fritz Lang uh, left his wife behind, his wife who wrote this movie, um, and because she still had some Nazi sympathies. Uh, so he took her jewelry. Oh. <laughs> He oh, sold God. it, used oh, that God. to uh, flee the country, and he uh, emigrated to the United States in 1933 and Damn. never left. So his first American production was the war drama Fury, and he followed up with a string of pretty successful films, including You Only Live Once, The Big Heat, The Woman in the Window, and Cloak and Dagger. Mm. His last film was actually a sequel to his first big film. It was 1960's The Testament of Dr. Mabuse, mm. uh, and then he died in 1976. Mm. But as a reputation, he had to, he had a rep, as a, as a director, he had a reputation for being cruel, mm. for being demanding, for being precise, uh, very kind of early Kubrick model. Mm. Um, in this movie, in, uh, for instance, there's a scene where Freighter has to fall at the feet of Maria. Mm-hmm. It took two days to oh, film that one scene. That one he made them moment. do it over oh, and over gosh. until the actor playing Freighter could barely walk. Uh. Um, and yeah, and he was known as a bit of a womanizer. He was constantly chasing younger women on the side behind his uh, three wives' uh, um, backs. Yeah. But nevertheless, you know, he was one of those important guys. And we're, we're going to be talking about again with uh, The Big Heat, which is a seminal uh, noir film in America, mm-hmm. and M, which is an early serial killer drama starring uh, Peter Lorre, which is really creepy. <laughs> have so you seen both of those? I have not seen The Big Heat, I don't okay. think. I've seen The Big Sleep. Yeah, me too. Um, yeah. <laughs> I get them confused. So a little bit of trivia about this movie. Uh, so Fritz Lang, he co-wrote this movie with his wife at the time, Thea von Harbo. Mm. And she kind of, she wrote the novelization of this two years prior to its release as kind of like a symbiotic release, you know, okay. so like. So she wrote it to be, to, to be in conjunction with this film. Yeah, to kind of, standalone. to kind of build up prestige for the movie and mm. kind of get, give people an idea of what they were getting into. Mm. Um, so yeah, there was a novelization of the movie. But it was conceived as a movie, and then they worked retroactively. Right. Yeah, not um, based on a novel or anything. So this movie was the biggest and most expensive film production of all time when it was made, uh, not just in Germany, but everywhere. Mm-hmm. It cost uh, one point, well, no, it cost 1.3 Reichmarks or million Reichmarks when it started. Mm-hmm. The final total on this was about 5 million Reichmarks. Which today is the equivalent of $17 million, wow. which is really low Damn. for a sci-fi epic, actually. Huh. So, pretty impressive. Yeah. Um, so, at the time, there were rumors and press speculation that the movie used as many as 40,000 extras. Oh uh, and Lang laughed when he heard that number. He <laughs> says, I have 300 people. It's just all about how you shoot them yeah. and using special effects. Like, yeah, no, I do not actually have 40,000 people <laughs> on this movie. A whole city he made. Uh, yeah, and filming this movie sounded like a nightmare. Mm. So it lasted 17 months. Oof. It went more than three times over budget. Uh, and yeah, and he was this obsessive perfectionist, and he pushed his crew beyond their capabilities. Like during the flooding sequence at the end of the movie, there's a cast of almost like... They, they, he brought in like close to 500 children mm-hmm. like from the streets of Berlin. These were yeah. like taken from the poor neighborhoods in Berlin. Oh. They were brought in for like a dollar a day or oh. something. And uh, oh, they were asked to stand in this waist deep freezing water for two weeks. Oh my gosh. And then he insisted that some of the extras throw themselves in front of these powerful jets of water oh, to no. like. Did get... anybody die? Nobody died. Nobody okay. was injured, amazingly. Um, so, yeah. That's yeah. Crazy. But it still sounds like it was hugely unpleasant. And it went so long. Yeah. Um, the special effects in this movie were done by a guy named Eugene Schuften, who invented a new progress, which, or a process, which is now called the Schuften effect, that used mirrors and light to insert actors into sets. Mm. So it's like almost kind of a primitive blue screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is something that's still used today. Like, well, maybe not today, but as recently as Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. like this technique was used. So that's, cool. uh, that's pretty cool. So, all right, a little bit about the different cuts of this mm-hmm. movie. So yeah. the, the original cut of this film was 153 minutes. Mm-hmm. But the German producers at the time thought that this would be too long. Audiences wouldn't want to sit still for this long. Mm-hmm. Um, so they insisted on it cutting down to 116 minutes. Mm-hmm. So, like, roughly a half an hour off the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so yeah, I, I think that's kind of interesting. I, if you think about like our the filmmaking and society and our relation with length, mm-hmm. I feel like we go in waves. Yeah, it's interesting in the twenties. I don't know that that they were still like this needs to be a tight ninety, a hundred, a hundred and twelve minutes. Like, yeah, that's that's our standard today, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's mostly it. But like, you get waves of it. Like mm-hmm. the first big movie was birth of a nation Mm -hmm. two and a half hour long movie or close to three hour movie Mm -hmm. and then everything was kind of this big epic of that time and then people got tired of epics you want it short you want it fast you want Mm -hmm. comedies you want it light you want horror films Mm -hmm. and then 40s 50s 60s we get all these biblical epics again Mm -hmm. four or five hour long movies and so it waxes and wanes a lot like Mm -hmm. that you know and i feel like i feel like we're very much well, I was gonna say we were very much in the shorter end of the spectrum, but like those Avengers movies are like three hours oh, long. Oh yeah, the Avengers. I mean, oof. most most yeah. big like superhero movies are two hours plus at yeah. least. Because they can get away with it, I guess, because they make like a shit ton of money. Yeah. But like generally, when a studio movie comes out, I don't know. Like I remember when I can't remember which three-hour movie was coming out, but everyone was like three hours. No yeah. way. Brr, 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 brr. Yeah, it's yeah. Like just out of the question that people will sit for a three-hour movie sometimes. Like I remember reading that new Stephen King movie, Doctor Sleep, kind of bombed oh. because people didn't want to go see a two and a half hour long yeah. movie. It's interesting because like you're you're in it, you're committed for this film, and like anyway. So why not just sit through however long it takes to tell the story? Yeah, yeah. Mm. You know, I don't know. Some some movies get that goodwill and some don't. And it's yeah. it's always interesting to see. And Judd Apatow movies are long oh. as hell. And they see, don't need to be. That's my thing. Like, I'm, I, I don't try and put time strictures on anything, but I do think that no comedy should be over two hours. Yeah. I you mean, know? Like, like, funny people, I feel like I watched that for years. Funny people is uh, <laughs> a horrible experience. <laughs> a horrible experience yeah, of a movie. Yeah, not fun at all. So, yeah, so the cut that we watched was like a most recent, the most recent restoration. Um, and it's a very interesting story behind that because the footage was kind of thought lost for decades and decades. Every subsequent cut of this movie that would come out was shorter and shorter and shorter. The shortest version, I, I do need to jump into this one. <laughs> the shortest version of this movie is 83 minutes. Mm-hmm. And it's generally called the Marauder version. It's named after Giorgio Marauder, who is a famous music producer, uh, best known for popularizing disco mm-hmm. in the United States in mm-hmm. the 70s. He made Donna Summer and he worked mm-hmm. with Freddie Mercury's solo career and Bonnie mm-hmm. Tyler and Pat Benatar, a whole bunch of other people. And uh, he paid $200,000 to buy the rights to this movie. He outbid David Bowie, who was trying to get the rights to this movie <laughs> as well. I wonder what the David Bowie cut would be. I would love to see the David <laughs> Bowie cut of this movie. Um, and basically he just, uh, he took this 83 minute cut of the movie, which is an hour shorter than what it was meant mm-hmm. to be. And he populated the soundtrack with disco music and and pop music you from the like era. should have like spliced in a disco ball. Something. Some <laughs> yes, yes. Or like tried to colorize it in some gaudy way. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, yeah, so the soundtrack was like a, a, a pop hit and like the movie... I can't imagine what that would... Like where you would even put disco songs. Yeah. But I mean, it's crazy to think in 1984, Metropolis got a major theatrical re-release. I know, in the 80s. Who I... I can't imagine it. I mean, I guess when I think of Metropolis today, if it comes out, I imagine it being this very pomp and circumstance live score, like cinephile kind of thing where like film students and old people come out. But I can't imagine just like a general 80s audience going to see this. No, no. And critics were brutal to it. Uh, they, They complained because this is a completely butchered print, like even... More so than the more butchered prints that have been coming out for years and years. <laughs> the soundtrack is awful. It's hilariously awful. The, the main single off this was called Love Kills by uh, Freddie Mercury. That won the Razzie for Worst Song. Uh, and this was just kind of drubbed by critics. And this was almost kind of like, you would almost think it's the death knell of Metropolis, but really kind of the opposite happened, which is that people became energized to try and restore this movie mm-hmm. because they're like, all right, we don't want this to be the version that everybody remembers of Metropolis. We need to find like a better, more intact print. Mm-hmm. And so like starting in the eighties, there was this big push to try and clean this movie up and like find all the missing footage. And they didn't really get any kind of break in that until two, uh, 2008 when uh, the Museo, de, uh, Museo del Cine in Buenos Aires, Argentina mm-hmm they found in their archives an almost complete cut of the movie. It was badly damaged, Mm -hmm. and it needed a lot of restoration, and there's five minutes of the movie that are just lost to time. We just think there's no no record of these at all. 
But what we have now is a 148-minute cut of this movie, which is the most intact it's ever been and probably the most intact we can hope for. Yeah. And not bad. I mean, I didn't feel like the five missing minutes really were. No. That crucial, hopefully. And I mean, what, what we gain with this new cut, uh, there was expanded roles for many of the supporting characters, including Joseph Fat, the Thin Man, and Georgie 11811. Mm-hmm. So those are three characters that are really barely in the original cut, and mm-hmm. they have significant subplots here. Like Joseph yeah. Fat in particular is like a kind of a big character. Yeah, he's one of the main characters. Um, yeah, and so they were all kind of pretty much cut out. We also get the character of Hell, who is Frederson's deceased wife, and we get the whole subplot about Rotvang being obsessed with her. Do they not have Hell very much in the... She's not in it at all. <gasps> not in it at all. But yeah. she's like the, the iconic. She's kind of like a crucial thing. Yeah. yeah, right? Like just having this this uh, figure like mm-hmm. and creating this conflict between Rotvang and Frederson, you know, yeah. like you kind of need her. Uh-huh. Uh, but you lost that in all of the cuts until now. Huh. There was another subplot involving a monk, and that's what's been completely lost. Mm-hmm. But we do get a little note of it. Do you mm-hmm. remember one of Frederson's dream sequences has the thin man dressed as a monk and giving a sermon? Mm-hmm. This is referencing this other character that's been lost that we, from the movie oh, completely. Okay. Interesting. Um, but yeah, this movie had a pretty toxic reputation when it was released because most of the critics pl- praised the visuals because mm-hmm. even then they're recognizing like this is yeah, next epic. level. This is something incredible. Mm-hmm. But they complained about the threadbare plot, which mm-hmm. would have been less threadbare if they mm-hmm. hadn't had to cut it down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, many claimed that this had an overtly communist message. Mm-hmm. While Joseph Goebbels, the profound <laughs> anti-communist, uh, thought there weren't enough communist me- <laughs> or like anti-communist messages in here and wanted him to work with. So, you know, either way. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think about that? Um, well, I guess I was pro-evil Maria because <laughs> were you? yeah because I was like yes she's like unifying the workers like like throw down the machines um and I, I the ending kind of gave me a little bit of a weird vibe where she like made I mean I know that it was like peace and unity and non-violence but like when the lower class and the upper class are sort of joined and shake hands and they're like we can make this work I guess in today's society it felt a little bit like I don't really want to shake hands with the upper class right now. Yeah. Um, so that's sort of how I, f- I, yeah, I found myself rooting for Evil Maria to to get the workers to unionize and overthrow the the one percent. Yeah. <laughs> I definitely read it as pro union. I don't yeah. think I read it as pro communist, but I can see how in 1927 you would conflate the two. You know, <laughs> like there's a lot of propaganda <laughs> out about that. Um, very rich and interesting story here. So. Kind of a basic overview of what we've got for the plot. Mm-hmm. So uh, our main characters here are Freder Freiderson, who is the uh, oblivious, wealthy son of mm-hmm. the most powerful man in the city of Metropolis, mm-hmm. a guy named Joe Freiderson. Yeah. So Daddy Warbucks. Exactly. Like so, Freder's kind of grown up literally in this this place called the Eternal Garden, mm-hmm. where women are just offered to him whenever yeah. he wants you can them. Just frolic and have fun. Yeah, and he he doesn't have a care in the world, and he's never thought about the circumstances that build the city because he's been so uh, sheltered from, and he doesn't have to. Mm-hmm. But one day, uh, a woman named Maria shows up with a gaggle of orphans mm-hmm. and opens his eyes to the plight of the people in the lower cities, what they call the worker cities. Mm-hmm. And that's when we learn that there's this stratosphere, you know? So the people living above ground are the wealthy elites. Mm-hmm. And then the workers that keep the city running and are working all the machines literally live below the ground yeah. in this uh, dystopian workers' city. Mm-hmm. And Freider was never familiar with this idea. He never knew about it. But he saw Maria... He falls in love with her immediately, and then he goes to kind of on a journey of the soul to try and discover exactly what makes Metropolis run. He gets a real wake-up call about his father, mm-hmm. um, begs his father to share the plight of the young of the people below. Uh, his father refuses. He has this kind of wake-up call, which to me, I'm like, all right, what did he think his father was before <laughs> this? The, the man is in his early 20s now. Mm-hmm. And his father is not like a cuddly guy. I, yeah. Can you imagine Joe Frederson going home and just like playing with his kids? <laughs> no, no, like, not at all. Like, who did he think his dad was necessarily yeah. bef- if he wasn't like this weird cold tyrant? Yeah, I feel like this movie kind of drops you into this world where the characters don't exactly feel lived in. They sort of just are there and they have the, the thoughts and the opinions and the beliefs that they have and we kind of just go with it. Yeah, yeah, which is fair. I mean, yeah, so the, some of the plotting is a little thin, but the, I think the central narrative is strong, and I mm-hmm. think the characters all get chances to learn and grow. And seeing this extended cut is 
it, it fills in a lot of the gaps for me. So I'd seen this movie before, mm-hmm. you know. In Did my, it make any sense? Like, well, how, what was the plot in the short? See, I don't think the plot really resonated with me the first mm-hmm. time I watched it. So when I watched it, it was on a really shitty, like, old Kino Lorber VHS tape. Mm-hmm. I think it was like a 90 or 94 minute Did cut of it. Did you see it as a kid? Were you like, I want to watch this silent I, I would have been like 18, 19. It was okay. kind of when I was first getting into film in a yeah. big way. And you were like, this is important. Yeah. Essential cinema. Capital I important, yeah. which is like, it's one of those movies like you, you watch it without really, just so you can kind of check it off a list, right. you know, yeah. so. Your Citizen Kane. Yeah, yeah, which, again, I came to really, really love Citizen Kane after a while, and I came to really love this, uh, seeing the full print, but Mm -hmm. first seeing it, I remember thinking, wow, these visuals are amazing, Mm -hmm. like, even now, like, they look great, Mm -hmm. Uh, and I don't understand what's going on, and I was also (laughs) kind of put off by the fact that the VHS tape I was watching had literally no score, it was like a silent movie in that you are watching, you, you basically are watching it on mute for an hour and a half, yeah. Uh, I don't recommend watching movies that way. No. I don't think movies oh, are intended God. to be I watched saw, that way. I saw a Passion of of Joan of Arc. Um, oh, silent in New York with no subtitles because they were just playing a print and they handed out like pieces of paper that had the whole script. But like they turned all the lights off, so you like had to hold the script kind of up to the projector so you could follow along. Yeah, and there was no like timestamp. There was no reference. You just sort of had to like guess what was going on, and it was kind of miserable like yeah. i'm glad that i did it it was an experience but it was tough yeah and i don't i wouldn't do it again i want to see passion of joan of arc with the score that which is how i saw it yeah and yeah. it's kind of a better way to go with yeah. it um so yeah my, my first viewing of this movie was not uh the most successful one it's not the one you want to go with but i still walked mm-hmm. away from it thinking like wow this is a really cool movie yeah and then seeing it now seeing it restored and seeing it almost how it's intended to be i'm like it's yeah. I, I I get it like it's, <laughs> it's not improved. it's not just an item on a checklist mm-hmm. I think this is worthy of its reputation mm-hmm. as like this big important epic I think mm-hmm. it's very well thought out I think it's mm-hmm. impeccably constructed mm-hmm. uh, beautifully shot it's innovative mm-hmm. it's it's forward thinking yeah. and I was just really blown away by this movie this time yeah. around I can imagine if like if you're really passionate about sci-fi which I admittedly like don't know a lot about sci-fi but like I can imagine if you had seen these modern movies and then you went back and you were like, ooh, this is the blueprint. This is yeah. like, this is the OG. And this is your first time with this movie, right? Yeah. 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 So like, yeah. That, what was your impression? Like, um, well, I'm glad I got to watch it, watch it in a theater and mm. like, blast the, the sound. And um, I did think, I probably felt closer to you in that like, just sort of taking it all in for the first time was a little bit like, I'm not really sure what's going on 100% of the time. I'm like digging this class divide. This yeah. robot subplot is cool. Um, I liked Maria a lot. Anything with Maria I thought was really um, profound. Yeah. Um, there were like, when we got sort of lost in the weeds with the other dudes and what was going on with them, I was a little bit confused. I had to like look on Wikipedia at some points to just make sure I was 100% following along. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean it's it's hard to deny that that it is like amazing. It reminded me a little bit of Modern Times. Oh yeah, um, one ex- of my that's like a top ten movie oh, for yeah. me. I oh, love that movie God. so yeah, much. I love that movie too. Um, except like this one was like you know capital S serious. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, no Charlie Chaplin going through the cogs. Um, well, he might have been in there somewhere. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, There's lots of cogs one in of this the movie. But yeah, I liked it. I can see its importance. I I don't know if I can say I had like a fun time watching it, but um, but I was really impressed. I I had I had more fun than I was expecting. Mm, like, yeah. it's never easy to psych yourself up to watch a two and a half hour silent film. Right. Like, it's something <laughs> where like you know you can't like, be scrolling on your phone. Like, here we go. <laughs> you got you have to sit down, and pay attention. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I didn't really have too much of a problem with it. I feel like it moves swiftly. It doesn't. Yeah. You don't feel the length all if that this, much i know that this when corona times are over mm. i know that this travels a lot with a live score if yeah. it ever comes to my town with a live score i will definitely go out of my way to see it oh 100 yeah i think I, I would really like to see this in a live thing mm-hmm. so a, a lot of the imagery that we get here since this is expressionism you know it tends to be kind of a one-to-one mm-hmm. thing so like the first shot we see of the movie is cogs turning it's mm-hmm. gears moving it's industry never stopping mm-hmm. and then we mm-hmm. conflate that with the very robotic looking men in the worker city mm-hmm. kind of trudging to work mm-hmm. trudging out of work all walking in lockstep yeah. like like sheep 
Like sheep, yeah, very. And it's the choreography and the visuals on it are cool, but also you have to think like, all right, yeah, this is a little on the nose, a little yeah. on the nose, but at the same time, all new. This is all new. This and this is expressionism. This is what it is. It's yeah. it's putting emotions and putting themes on the screen in a visual yeah. way. You it's know? interesting going back and watching these like um, influential films because you kind of recognize the imagery before because it's like films have borrowed so much from things like this mm. like even commercials like it sort of reminded me of that really popular historical apple commercial you know where it's oh like, with the throwing yeah, of the, the hammer yeah, yeah a little bit like that and like i don't know just more sci-fi where lots of people are being like shuffled into small areas and they all look miserable like the double and things like that yeah 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 so I, I like they really hit the religious imagery hard in this. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. early on with Maria, it's almost to a comical degree how mm-hmm. saintly they make her. <laughs> yeah. The first time oh. you see her is standing amidst a crowd of dirty faced orphans with her hands out. Yeah. You see her posing in front of like a bunch of crosses. They should like, have just called her Mary. Yeah, yeah. She's so so saintly every time we see her, mm-hmm. which makes the contrast of the uh, the false Maria like mm-hmm. it's really fun performance from Brigitte Helm because she gets yeah. to go. She goes so into it. She gets to go to both polarities so extremely. She was 18 at the time of making this movie. Total unknown. Uh, But she's clearly having like a lot of fun, like playing both sides of this. Maria is very like. She's so predatory and so like slutty and just kind of like. Creepy crawly. I, I love the montage of like the the collage of eyes uh-huh. watching her like all the men like their eyes going insane oh gosh, with lust yeah, as they look at that her that was crazy i mean and then they have like but they hit like i said they hit the biblical imagery hard mm-hmm. she's meant to represent the whore of babylon who's going to mm-hmm. come down and destroy society so they actually have her dressed in that regalia riding a seven-headed yeah. serpent meant to represent the seven deadly sins that scene was intense I liked that. so cool <laughs> and so i don't know what did you think they were trying to say by contrasting all the the biblical stuff with the with kind of the the social and classes stuff um i mean i'm not very religion literate so like this i'm just coming from you know a dummy but Mm. it seemed to me like they were presenting a very traditional view like evil maria represented you know everything that's wrong and like it felt very traditional like like sex negative and this evil woman is gonna come down and 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 unite you all against with violence and it'll just be the worst and like and they needed to rescue her and make her good maria again with good maria with good values and saintly so it did feel it felt like there was no like gray area there no like good bible bad bible you know what i mean this is kind of something that this movie really highlighted for me and made me think about in other science fiction films is that even the most like progressive forward thinking sci-fi films mm-hmm. has this kind of relation with religion relationship with religion where it's like the further we advance as a society the farther we stray from god mm-hmm. and uh <laughs> yeah kind of literally it's like we as we start to kind of develop our own agency we no longer need this omniscient creator mm-hmm. and that's kind of what we're getting here mm-hmm. uh I, one of the most striking images in the movie, I thought, was when uh, Freder is looking at the machine and his hallucination turns it into Moloch, mm-hmm. which I looked up. And this mm-hmm. was a, a pagan god that demanded child sacrifice, oh. which oh. makes it all the more striking later in the movie when the workers decide to destroy Moloch. But by doing so, they're sacrificing their children, leaving them all behind in yeah. this flooding worker's city. Yeah. So, like, they literally are sacrificing their children to the machine. Mm-hmm. Uh so there's some very interesting contrast there. And then calling the New Tower of Babel, you know, the New Tower of Babel yeah. <laughs> with one of the most famous uh, uh, Bible stories about man's hubris, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely hitting that hard. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know if it's something I necessarily agree with. Like, yeah. I don't know. And again, coming from I'm a religion dummy, too. You know, I didn't really grow up with the faith or anything. Mm-hmm. But like, it seems to me the more autonomous we get, the 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 brighter the future should look, you yeah. know, like that's the. I think that's a positive outlook on it. Yeah. Right? And this this Metropolis is kind of all about man uh, man's grasp extending their reach, you know, like like or their reach extending their grasp. Like they're 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 aiming for the stars but they're losing their souls. Mm-hmm. Um, which plays out in a really interesting way, I think, and I think the visuals really kind of back that up. But yeah. but yeah, they really hit the Bible stuff hard. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, yeah, so I think there's some really cool model work and stop motion animation to like make, this, like even looking at it and being like, oh, that's a model. It's mm -hmm. still like, fuck, that's a cool model. You know, it's one of those things <laughs> yeah. like, yeah, yeah. If you're, if you're fairly film literate, you know, the tips, the, the tricks that they did here, mm -hmm. but it's still really cool that they thought to do it yeah. back then. It comes together very nicely. And like, I love all the matte tableaus of, of the city itself. Yeah. It's clearly just the an artist rendering. Very, very cool. I it's think gorgeous. all the shots of like the city as a whole when you can see the cars moving and stuff, those were my favorite shots. I mean, it's pretty amazing. Like, did you ever see um I don't know how big you are into anime, but there's an anime movie from 2003 called Metropolis. It's kind of a very very interesting worth checking out if yeah. you liked this movie because um it's really beautiful and the way that it kind of posits this gigantic city in a relationship mm. between a robot girl and a human boy like uh, really cool. Um I would say check that out, yeah. but yeah, I mean, if you love a good sci-fi skyline, mm -hmm. I think you owe it to yourself to check out this movie because cool. us describing it on a podcast really isn't going to do it <laughs> justice. Um, mm -hmm. But I mean, I love all the little details that become sci-fi staples, like when the false Maria is being brought to life, you get sci-fi rings, mm -hmm. you know, the little mm -hmm. electric rings that float yeah. around them. And like, I love those. I don't know where those come <laughs> from or what they're called. I just call them sci-fi sci rings. rings. I think that does the job. I think it's great. Like, yeah. I don't know what creates this effect except <laughs> science and fiction yeah. collaborating Aww. like so much Reese's peanut butter cup. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I, I just I think the the models are really awesome. Um, like there's kind of an interesting, almost an attempt at a Prince and the Pauper storyline in the middle here, where Freighter descends into the worker city and swaps places with an exhausted worker. Yeah. And the worker, like when given the opportunity to go up and live like the upper crust do. Mm -hmm immediately goes to a prostitute like yeah. immediately goes and spends all his money on this little neighborhood what was the neighborhood it was yoshiwara mm. which is the name of tokyo's red light district mm. um so it's kind of so you can see this as kind of a hodgepodge mm -hmm. of every different city yeah um much like the uh, uh great classic uh babe pig in the city where <laughs> oh <laughs> yeah that's cinema classic which again <laughs> weird thing to say but uh metropolis huge influence on babe pig in the city um, Oh, um, so if you like we that movie. We all need to revisit Babe Pig in the Pacific. Oh my god. That movie, I... I not to still go thinking on a tangent. about it weeks later? I'm still thinking about it weeks later. That movie's a weird little masterpiece. Yeah. Like, I don't know. It's so strange. It's weird that it, like, was born out of Babe, too, which is kind of a normal, like, just talking animal movie. And right. Like, in the city, is just so bonkers. Like, the most unassuming, like, quiet little story <laughs> becomes this madcap Metropolis <laughs> spin. Yeah. And there is a very, very important character that we need to talk about here, and that is uh, Rotvang. Mm -hmm. Rotvang, who is the the prototypical mad scientist yeah. i think like yeah yeah i think obviously frankenstein the novel had been out at this point so this mm. this idea of like a, a a scientist who's lost his mind is is mm -hmm. established in the firmament but yeah. this put a face to it in a way that i think has really stuck with us yeah the that image of just like a crouching man who's wild-eyed like wild-haired <laughs> usually german like yeah. i feel like pretty much every pop culture mad scientist mm -hmm. From here on, yeah. is some variation on Rodvang mm -hmm. in this, which yeah. makes sense. It's a it's a great like wild eyed crazy performance. Yeah, and again, that's the thing that this new extended cut offers us that we didn't have the first time around mm -hmm. is that extra layer of depth to explain his madness a little bit. He's not just Frederson's lackey. Mm -hmm. He's he's kind of working to undermine Frederson at the yeah. same time because mm -hmm. he was in love with uh, the, the the woman that Frederson mm -hmm. stole from him. Yeah, and, and then she died. Um, yeah, hell, hell, which is a fun name to say. Like, uh -huh. yeah, hey, hey, what's up, hell? Uh, so I think, yeah, Rodvang's a very interesting character, and that's weirdly one of the more influential parts of this movie is giving us a mad scientist yeah. who I love a good mad scientist. Yeah. I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, and, the, the, and then this whole idea with the false Maria. Mm -hmm. So basically Rodvang invents a humanoid robot mm -hmm. that can have the appearance of an actual human grafted onto it, and no mm -hmm. one will know the difference. And yeah. the... Intention, because I just watched the thing for the first time. Oh yeah, so, which also has that theme of like something in disguise. The John Carpenter thing and the original yeah, thing. The, yes, the John Carpenter. Thing. Yes, I yeah. love that movie. <laughs> so good. But yeah, another movie where where people are not always who they appear. Yes, yes, and I love that. And she just starts. Mm -hmm. 
basically sowing chaos. And mm-hmm. the idea is yeah. he wants to get the workers to revolt so that he can open fire on them and teach them a lesson, help keep them in order. Mm-hmm. But Rodfang is working against him and wants to have an actual revolution mm-hmm. where the workers actually overthrow him. And uh, so he's kind of using Maria mm-hmm. as his whore of Babylon and as his yeah. uh, front piece. Mm-hmm. Which also leads to one of the first instances of, uh, oh, no, kill her. She's the real or she's the fake one. No, no, no. no. (laughs) Like, so you don't actually know which one is the proper one, like, until it's revealed. Um, Until they burn her at the stake and she turns into a robot. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And I feel like Freighter as a character, uh, I kind of lost interest in his arc about halfway through the movie. Yeah. Once the false Maria came into play and and Brigitte Helm is getting all this fun stuff to do, Uh like... And he's, then, a, he's still off doing stuff, and I was like, why Why am I supposed to care about this guy again? What's he doing? Yeah, mm-hmm. and even, like, the big burly, uh, like, foreman of the workers' city is more um, interesting at this yeah. point. Joe Frederson is more interesting at this point. He's, yeah. he's kind of a complicated villain, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. who loves his son but doesn't know how to show it and doesn't and, – and he has to think more about his leg. Is his legacy going to be his son or is it going to be his city, you mm-hmm. know? And which one does he have to protect if it comes down to it? Yeah. So, again, the Moloch imagery of sacrificing your child for the beast, mm-hmm. the beast being the city. <sighs> so, anyway, I've mm-hmm. rambled on a lot, but yeah. uh, I do love some of the other films. Like, do you know some of the Sam Raimi kind of dolly zooms in this? Ooh. Like, I don't know. There were a couple of moments that made me think like, ooh, Evil Dead. Like, like because it's clearly like, obviously, there weren't handheld cameras back then. Mm-hmm. But they had obviously put it on some kind of rig mm-hmm. from like down below. And they zoomed up into the character's face like mm-hmm. from, well, they were on an elevated level. I don't know. Yeah. I got cool. Sam Raimi I've, vibes. I've never seen the Evil Dead. Um, my ooh. favorite Sam Raimi movie is still Spider-Man 2. Oh, um, they do it in Spider-Man 2 also. So oh, yeah? there you go. Yeah, lots of lots of those little That's zoom dolly shots. Uh, cool on the clock tower and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So... Mm-hmm. I, you know, that's about all I've got to ramble on about uh, Metropolis. I uh, I really loved it. Um, I think it holds up beautifully. I think mm-hmm. it's something, don't be put off by the silent film part of it. Don't be put off by the length of it, I mm-hmm. think. Yeah, I think it's essential viewing. I think there's a reason that, like, it's in every film 101 class that you kind of, you go through German expressionism and yeah. you always talk about Metropolis. Um, it's also, I took a class on, or just a seminar on, like, sexy robots and this, <laughs> this was kind of like the number one sexy robot the original sexy robot so the, the real the real uh, <laughs> legacy of Metropolis is uh, real life dolls or like whatever yes. <laughs> real dolls whatever um, they're called exactly um, and yeah I guess I just I I feel like I have a lot of friends who who love sci-fi who are so passionate about sci-fi and I've never been like sci-fi inclined with my little brain Um, (laughs) I think I'm more of like a human drama dialogue kind of person but like I think that everyone who cares about sci-fi and like wants to know like the historical significance of it should probably see Metropolis I think, I mean, as moviegoers, we want to be awed. We want to see something we've never seen before. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this movie offered that yeah. in a way that's that's been so influential uh, yeah. throughout the years. And I think it still has that power, mm-hmm. like, because we're able to put it in the context of the time and realize what a remarkable achievement this was for 1927. Yeah. and like almost 100 years. Yeah, technology that, that uh, they had to invent, basically, mm-hmm. to make this movie work. Yeah. Uh, pretty amazing. Yeah. Watching this kind of felt like reading classic literature, but yeah. for film. Yeah, 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 yeah. I can see it. I can see it. Well, that was Metropolis. Uh, be sure to check in with us next week. We're going to read uh, Ebert's essay on that and see what he thought and see if we kind of align on that. And we're also going to be talking about another movie. Ooh, it's always fun to talk about movies on a movie podcast. Uh, I think we're going in a very different direction this time around because <laughs> yeah. we are going to be talking about Agnes Varda's 1962 <gasps> film Cleo from Yay! 5 to 7. Uh, Agnes Varda! I think the first time on this list that you've seen a movie that I have not. <gasps> Uh, I wow, I feel so superior. <laughs> uh, you should, you should. So we will be watching Cleo from 5 to 7. I believe this one's available in the Criterion channel if you have yeah. access to that. Uh, so, and it's this is a crisp 90-minute movie. Yeah, so, it's, it's, and it takes place in real time, not to oh, spoil it. But. I love me a good real-time movie. <laughs> yeah. Especially Nick of Time starring Johnny Depp. Everyone's <laughs> favorite 90-minute 
pot boiling. Um, no, it's not good. Um, anyway, we, yes. We need to rate these, right? Oh, we do need to rate you these, yes. You because I can't remember. I keep forgetting what our list is. Yeah, I got to do a separate thing. So, so far, we have watched four movies. Uh, my list currently is In Cold Blood is number one. Mm-hmm. Uh, my Fair Lady is number two. Unchiana Andalou is number three. JFK is number four. Okay. Are you on the same? Our, yeah, our lists are identical, right? Yeah, I think we sure. haven't diverged yet. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my gosh. But um, in time, in time. In time. You know what? You know what? Mm. I'm going to put Metropolis below in Shin Andalou. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. Well, guess what? I'm putting this at number one so far. I think <gasps> this is my this is my, this is is my my favorite one that we've watched so far. Amazing. I think it's a really cool flick. Uh, and uh, so that's that's where I'm going with it. Um yeah. But let's see if uh, let's see if an unassuming French film <laughs> can topple the mighty Fritz Lang. Let's find out. I'm excited for that to happen. Yeah, tune in next week. Tune in next week, everybody. Thank you for listening. We are Rogers List Pod on all of the social medias and on Letterbox. So don't forget to check us out there. Oh, I have Letterbox news. I emailed oh. le- the Letterbox dudes um, because the the actual URL Michaela wasn't taken. Oh, so. I am now the proud owner of letterbox.com slash Michaela. Oh, my God. M-I-K-A-Y-L-A. So you can just find me there. Do do you think Steve is taken? You could ask. Oh, yay. Steve seems a little bit uh, less likely than Michaela, but it's always worth an email. Always, always. Um, So, yes, check us out on social media on on, uh, Letterboxd. My other show is called Ultra 64. Uh, We've still got quite a few a few episodes on that left uh really? we're we're, done? we're wearing down we're getting down to it we're, i think we got like 20 episodes to go oh before God. we're like done how many games do you have left 40 ish i don't know somewhere in there we combine them but yes uh for those who don't know that's the show where we're playing every game in the nintendo 64 catalog so check that out thank you all for listening and we will see you next time bye Love don't pay no bills Love don't give no indication